I'm Tavi Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavi Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both in-person and virtual settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. Now, if you've been enjoying my podcast and the insights and tools I've been sharing on how you can improve your leadership craft, and you're interested in having me expand on them with your team and organization, I'd like to invite you to check out my speaking page on our website at tavidasir.com to learn about some of the topics I can discuss at your upcoming event. And now I'd like to introduce my guest for this episode, Dr. Tina Opie. Tina is an associate professor of management at Babson College and a well-regarded thought leader in the field of organizational behavior. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, Business Insider, Old Magazine, the Boston Globe, and Harvard Business Review. I've invited Tina to talk with me about her books she co-wrote with Dr. Beth Livingston, Shared Sisterhood, How to Take Collective Action for Racial and Gender Equity at Work which was picked by Forbes Magazine as one of their 10 best books of 2022. Hi, Tina. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I have to tell you, Tina, I really enjoyed reading this book, Beth, and you wrote. So I'm eager to dive into your book here because I know for many people, this can be a difficult or uncomfortable conversation to have. But with your help here today, I'd like to kickstart that conversation so those listening will have the understanding and insight to know how to successfully do so as well. And to start things off here, Tina, I'd love it if you could share with our listeners how you define racism, because not just in the United States, but I can tell you here in Quebec, there is a push to politicize the term, which only serves to maintain systemic racism in place instead of encouraging an honest dialogue about how do we effectively move forward. I'm so happy that you asked that question because as a professor, words, you know, I always tell my students and the people I work with, words really matter. So we define racism and many people in our field define racism as power plus prejudice. So power is access to and control over resources. Okay, so let's put a pin in that for a second. Prejudice has to do with preconceived notions about a person or a group. So it might be based on, and it's usually not based on reason or actual experience. And anyone can be prejudiced. Anyone can be prejudiced, regardless of your racial background, whether you're white, black, Middle Eastern, um, Asian, Latinx, et cetera, et cetera. You can be prejudiced. But when it becomes racism is when you can take that preconceived notion and put power behind it, power of the government power of legislation, power of the judiciary. So for example, if you are prejudiced against a particular group and you don't want them living in your neighborhood, if you don't have the ability to enforce that with policies and procedures, well, then you just have a prejudice. But if you are able to then say, let's make it a law that certain people cannot live in my neighborhood, you have power. And that power plus prejudice makes it racism. And another way to sort of differentiate this, we'll use the United States as an example. When I ask the question, 
give me a time or tell me a time where Black people as a group have discriminated against white people as a group. I mean, we can think long and hard, but if I were to ask the other question in the reverse, give me a time or give me examples of when white people as a group have harmed black people as a group, or tell me a time when white people as a group have harmed indigenous people as a group, you could come up with a lot of historical examples. And that is that is the sort of the illustration of racism. And I, I know that some people will hear that and immediately bristle and say, this is divisive. This conversation is problematic because just by calling people white or black or indigenous, Tina is, is exacerbating the problem. Here's what I will say to you. One, would you trade places with if you're white and you're hearing this and you're offended, would you trade places with a black person? If, if life is all roses and meritocracy, would you randomly trade places with a black person or an indigenous person? I've asked that question. Most of the time I have zero volunteers because deep down inside, most white people know it is not, it's the, the deck is not fair. It's not fair, we know that. But people become intensely uncomfortable because this conversation is about power. And people think if we are honest about this discussion, it's a zero sum game. I'm gonna lose something if they gain something, but it does not have to be that way. And that's what shared sisterhood is about. Yes, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to start our conversation with your definition of racism, because I think it makes it easier for us to not only have this conversation, but to also understand the importance and necessity of shared sisterhood, which you just mentioned, which, as you describe in your book, is about creating collective action whereby women of all races work together to dismantle racial and gender inequality in the workplace. And let's be honest, you don't have to be an expert like yourself, Tina, to be aware of the fact that gender equality persists in today's workplaces and that inequality impacts women from minority groups far more than it impacts white women. And the way shared sisterhood accomplishes this goal of finally doing away with gender and racial inequality at work is through what you call authentic connections that are based on four components, empathy, vulnerability, trust, and risk-taking. Now, I know on the surface, these may seem obvious, but unfortunately, obvious doesn't mean practiced or employed. So could you share, Tina, why we need to start with authentic connections and how these four elements fosters that? Yes, thank you. That is a great question. And, and I think one of the best ways to demonstrate authentic connections and those four components is the relationship between me and my co-author, Beth Livingston. So Beth and I met probably 15 or so years ago, and we're both professors. I had just given a talk at the Academy of Management, which is the major convening organization for management and strategy faculty, as well as doctoral students. And I had come off the stage, there was a queue of people waiting to speak with me and Beth bounded up to me and extended her hand. And I sort of backed up on my heels because I didn't know her. And I didn't know if I should shake her hand or call security, but she was friendly enough. And I was, I was friendly to her, but I was reticent. I was a little suspicious. And this is the, the first, pause moment that I'll have for you because your audience may be saying, well, why weren't you just open and re receptive to her? 
And this is a, a, a moment where I make myself vulnerable. As a Black woman in a society, uh, specifically at work, I have been betrayed a lot especially by white women. So when I saw a white woman come up to me, my immediate, I was suspicious because I didn't know what she wanted. Did she want something from me? Was she there to befriend me? Was she there to harm me? And those, there are all these internal, di this internal dialogue is happening. So I shake her hand and we, we say hello. And she, I later found out that we had a friend in common and we, she, Beth kept calling me or emailing me and she persisted. And I didn't know, you know, she, if she was here, she would, I can share, she would share in more detail some of the, the thoughts that she was having. But I know for me, I had to do what I call dig. And dig, you know, there's three parts of shared sisterhood, uh, which is dig, bridge, and collective action. And dig is about reflecting on yourself. I had to really say, Tina, why are you not trusting Beth? Has she done anything to you to show that she's not trustworthy? So the answer was no. So then I had to make myself vulnerable and respond to Beth in a different way. In turn, Beth had to empathize with me because Beth told me later that while she, she noticed that I wasn't being quite as trusting of her, but she paused and rather than getting defensive, what she thought to herself was, you know what? I just came up to Tina forgetting that there's a reason why a black woman might not trust me as a white woman. She doesn't know me from, from you know, Susan or Eve. She doesn't know who I am. So I need to slow down and demonstrate that I am trustworthy. So she did that. So she empathized with me. She took the time to try to see things from my perspective. Then Beth took risks on my behalf. So to show that she was trustworthy, rather than just saying it, she actually acted in a trustworthy way. But, you know, she might stand up for me in a public forum if she saw that someone was saying something racist, for example. Rather than expecting me to deal with it alone, she might she would demonstrate that she was trustworthy by standing up and actually living the values that she has said that she stood for. Um, and then over time, as we began to know each other, so we found out that we're both academics, we're both mothers, we're both wives, we both love 90s hip hop, we both like to dance. We also, so those were our similarities. So we bonded on those things. And then we found out that we had dissimilarities. You know, we're both, we have different racial ethnic backgrounds, but I'm a Christian and Beth is an atheist. So we also began to explore those differences and we don't always agree, but the foundations that we established because of the risk-taking, the vulnerability, the empathy and the trust helped us layer by layer, interaction by interaction to establish this really firm foundation of authentic connection so that we trust we trust each other at a deep level i mean so much so now that our money is intertwined <laughs> with each other i mean we for you know we we are we we trust each other at an implicit level um uh, but it didn't start that way and our relationship is a case study on what is possible when two people from very different backgrounds commit to creating authentic connections by centering the value of equity. I mean, shared sisterhood works. 
And, and Beth and I are an example of that. You know, what I found interesting about this idea of authentic connections, Tina, is that when we talk about leadership, one of the things that women leaders are often praised for doing a better job at compared to their male counterparts is being able to foster connections and promote collaboration. Mm -hmm. So there's clearly a blind spot at play here for women, particularly white women, from some of the examples and research findings, Beth, and you shared in your book, which touches on that first practice needed for creating shared sisterhood, which you mentioned called the dig practice. But before we delve into that practice, I'd like to explore this idea that the process of dismantling gender and racial inequality requires work on three levels, individual, interpersonal, and collective. Yeah. So, Tina, could you walk us through these three levels and how we use the efforts made in one to fuel those we need to make in the other? That's a great question. So, one of the reasons when Beth and I embarked on writing this book, um, you know, and, and I actually started the idea for Shared Sisterhood, I started thinking about this in 2009. And then things sort of were really expedited right before the, George Floyd was murdered, honestly. Um, and Beth and I, when we looked at a lot of the work that was happening in culture, organizational change, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. A lot of the work was focused on sort of the individual, things like implicit bias or cognitive bias or that, that kind of training. And then there were also a lot of work on how you can sort of do pay equity audits, things at the systems level. But there wasn't a lot of work out there that connected the individual to the systemic. So people were often stuck. I'm like, I'm motivated to change, but what do I do in this sea of racism and sexism? How can I contribute as an individual? And that's where authentic connections come in. So at the individual level, the way that we tie this in is we look at DIG, as I was talking about. So that, that's you as a, as a human being, as, a, as an individual. What are the unique things that comprise who you are as an individual. That's what we talk about is dig. How can you assess yourself? What is it about yourself that is most salient to you? How does that affect how you see the world, how you see other people? It is very difficult for employees, for managers, for leaders, for a neighborhood organizer to really, I think, connect with other people or come up with policies to be to even see the need to be more equitable if they have never reckoned with who they are as an individual and how that may affect how they see the world. I, I think a lot of this legislation, and I, this is a slight tangent, I mean, I don't know if I should get into naming the legislation we were talking about before, but, but I think the reason why somebody might ban wearing religious symbols in public or ban talking about Black history um, in schools is because they have no idea the importance of those things because they've never reckoned with why they think it's problematic at an individual level. They've never ever confronted that. They've never dug into it. They just hear that it's different than what they've been exposed to and they don't wanna hear, they're, they're reacting to it. So they need to dig at the individual level. So that's the, the individual level. The second level is interpersonal. And we a lot of times people in organizations want to reach out. 
I've had people say, oh, Tina, I'm so sorry that this happened. How can I help you? That's what we call bridge when you're trying to form, when you're working to form these authentic connections. And this is where you're, you're trying to connect with someone who is different than you, where you center the value of equity. That is great. But what we found in our research and in our consulting work when we've done this is that when people who, you know, we talked about, use the word power, uh, power is access to and control over resources. And so from a collective level, there are some groups of people who have had more access to power and we call those people historically power dominant. And there are some people and groups who have had less access to power and we call those people historically marginalized. If you are coming from a historically power dominant group and you are attempting to bridge with someone from who, who's from a historically marginalized group, it is critical that you recognize that you may need to dig and understand those power dynamics before you attempt to bridge. What do I mean by that? I'm a Christian. In the United States, that is a power dominant religious category. So if I'm attempting to bridge with someone like Beth, who's an atheist or someone who's a Muslim or a Hindu or an agnostic, I need to listen much more than I talk. Why? Because in this country, Christianity is normative. And if you don't believe me, look at the school calendar. And Christmas is always a holiday. It never conflicts with the school exam schedule. But Diwali, for example, I think there was one year where we had an exam scheduled on that day. That was a problem. I didn't even think about that until it was brought to my attention by one of my students. And then I had to advocate. So I had a lot more to learn. And I took it upon myself not to ask that student to educate me, but to go and educate myself. This is a critical point. You must educate yourself and, and, and learn how to connect with people, especially if you're from a historically power dominant group. Okay, Tina, so we've covered the first two levels of personal and interpersonal. What about the collective level? Yeah, so so individual is you as an and who you are as a person, how you are situated in the world. Interpersonal is sort of the relationship, the dyadic relationship that you have with other people. And then institutional or systemic is this network or, or systems that are in place. So in, we like to say in any organization, there are at least eight critical systems, right? You get from onboarding to recruiting, pay, evaluation, promotion. And so these systems are working and you can see from an ecological perspective that the individual is nested in the interpersonal, which is nested in the system. And in order to understand any level, you need to understand the context of the others. And so it will be incomplete to think about the individual without also thinking about the interpersonal context and the institutional. So with shared sisterhood, we assess and look, give you tools to look at all three levels of analysis. So now that we understand the work that needs to be done on different levels in order to dismantle gender and racial inequality, Let's explore those two practices you mentioned, starting with the dig practice. So what is the dig practice, Tina? And what does it involve? What are some questions we should be asking ourselves to help begin this process of creating a shared sisterhood? 
The shared sisterhood is this philosophy that we have on how we can redress systemic inequity. So this is not just about helping people be less racist or be less prejudiced. And by the way, anyone can be prejudiced, racially prejudiced or racially discriminatory, but it is only people from historically power dominant groups who can be racist. And, and I, you know, I know people disagree with me, but that is the way that I use the term. And so uh, shared sisterhood is about redressing systemic inequities such as racism, sexism, and, and, and other isms. Um, we use that philosophy is based on three practices, which are dig, bridge, and collective action. And those practices tie to those levels of analysis that I just mentioned. So dig is at the individual level of analysis. Dig is where you ask yourself questions like, who am I? What do I believe in? What are my critical identities? How do I define myself? When did I start to define myself? What are my assumptions about those identities? And by identities, I mean things like, if, if I were to ask you to, on a piece of paper, say who you are, you might say things like, I am a woman, I am a wife, I am a soccer fan, I am from Virginia, I'm from the United States, I am Black, I am white, I'm an AKA, you know, that's my sorority. And so you would list all of the identities to which you have, and then you would pause and say, which ones are most salient or, or matter the most to you? And that can change depending upon your age, your context, if you're at work or not. And then you would you would ask yourself, okay, how does this frame how I see the world? Because if you are thinking about being a mom or a parent, that may change how you think versus if you're thinking about when you're an employee. Do you see how those differing identity lenses can change what you're thinking about? I think it also changes in the context too, right? In certain contexts, you'll be looking at it, say you're a parent, you'll be focusing more from a parental perspective. For example, when you go to school events and so forth, from a work perspective, it's a different identity as well. Exactly. Exactly. And then what we begin to do is, is we say, okay, which, which of these identities, which ones are most important at work for me? Which ones have been facilitators or inhibitors in my mind of my progress at work? Which ones have helped and which ones have hindered? Why do I think that? Do I think that these are the same for other people? What do I think have facilitated? What do I think are the identities that have facilitated or inhibited other people at work? Why? What's the relationship between these things? What are the histories of these identities? So when I came up with the term dig, I did that because I felt as though there were many well-intentioned people who wanted to get along with each other at work, but we were talking past each other. We didn't really understand ourselves. And it's very difficult to connect with people if we don't have that fundamental understanding of who we are. There's actually another point you bring up here in your book that I think is critical to understand. And it's this point that where we begin our dig journeys differs if we're part of the power dominant group or part of the historically marginalized groups, because more often than not, discussions around dismantling systemic racism tend to act as if we're all coming at this from the same starting point. And I think that a lot of the friction we see around this is because there's a lack of awareness that there are different starting points. 
Yeah. But we also need to understand here that the dig process is not just about increasing your self-awareness, but getting you to question yourself about your own biases, your perceptions, and how that impacts your interpersonal relationships. Absolutely. And, and, and recognizing that dig is an iterative process. So, so what you just mentioned, when, when Beth first approached me, I had to dig. I had to address the fact that I was suspicious of her because she was a white woman. And I was, I was not individuating. I was stereotyping Beth. She was a proxy for white women writ large. And that's not right. Now, let's have, let's be, this is a very vulnerable moment. And hopefully if people are still hanging in there, listening to your podcast, this could be a very big insight for them. People may be offended by what I just said, that I processed Beth as a proxy for all white women and therefore didn't, and didn't trust her. But let's switch to gender. Women, during the Me Too movement, there were so many women who were sharing stories about how when they got into a cab or if they're walking down a, a dark street late at night, in the United States, the number that you dial for emergency is 911. And they would dial nine and one on their phone, and then their finger would hover over the last one, just in case they saw someone come towards them. Or if they get into a, a ride-sharing app or a cab, they would call their friends and say, hey, I'm in a car with a guy. This is what he looks like. Did they do that because they didn't trust all men? No. They did that because this man was a proxy for the group of men, and we know statistically men have been the group that have done what? Harmed women. <laughs> and this is the point of insight that I think many white women and, and white people may not know. For many historically marginalized people, white people are a threat. Historically, white people have harmed people from historically racial, marginalized racial backgrounds. And that, that is hard for sometimes people from historically power-dominant groups or white people to hear because the social media, media and the, the news would have you believing that people from historically marginalized racial groups are the perpetrators. But if you look at history, the greatest harm social at a collective level has been done by white people to historically marginalized racial groups. And so I just wanna explain I'm not excusing it, but I'm trying to explain why the dig process, my processing of Beth as a proxy for a collective of white women is rooted in history. And so I had to almost use the dig process to snap myself out of that so that I would individuate. I needed to individuate, go to ask myself why I was processing that, then say Beth has shown herself to be trustworthy and develop a unique relationship with her. And as she showed herself to be more and more trustworthy, I made myself more and more vulnerable. She showed herself to be more trustworthy and it went on from there. But, I, I, but she was acknowledging the fact that as a white woman, she may have needed to do a different kind of work, dig work, than the kind of work that I needed to do. I hope that was helpful, Tanvir. Oh, it was. And you know what? You're reminding me of an excellent point, Beth, and you bring up in your book, and that is that we have to understand the focus shouldn't be on our intent, 
but rather it needs to be on the impact our actions have on those from various marginalized groups. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been told by colleagues when describing a racist encounter I had that, oh, maybe they were just having a bad day or I'm sure you hurt them wrong or something like that. I don't think there's really an understanding of how dismissive that is of the experiences marginalized groups have in the workplace and elsewhere. But it's again, it's just this idea that there's this discomfort, right? And we just kind of want to remove that discomfort. And I do understand that for some people, it's also about trying to see the best intentions in people. But again, this is why I like this point you're making that the focus shouldn't be on your intent. It should be on the impact your actions are having on others and using that in this process of dig to evaluate if it's not having the right impact, even though my intention might have been well, as you were sharing with your experience with Beth, what do I need to do differently to have the impact I'm trying to accomplish or have? Absolutely. And this intent and impact distinction is critical. And, and it's also important, you know, I've had so many people say, oh, well, they, you know, they didn't mean that. <laughs> In that moment, I think it's critical to ask, so how should I interpret this? Where you are equating their feelings with the outcome that I am now dealing with. So their discomfort is equal to my lack of a job or lack of a promotion. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like... I have had to, I've had some meetings where people would say, well, I feel unsafe. And I'm like, listen, I first of all, safety to me, are you physically in danger? Did someone threaten you? Because if you're just uncomfortable because someone challenged your viewpoint, you know, I'm not going to be rude to you. Tell me why you think that where that thought process comes from. What are the data sources for that? You know, sort of having people demonstrate their logic. If you then say, I feel unsafe, feeling uncomfortable is different from being unsafe. I have physically been unsafe, whereas people have wanted to maybe harm me, where I've gotten hate mail. That is a different thing than someone wanting to cry in a meeting because they felt like, Someone may have thought they were racist. That is a totally different ballgame. And we have to stop equating those two. It's not the same thing. No, it's not. So walk us through the next process in the shared sisterhood model, Tina, that of bridge. Yes. Once we've started the process of dig, yes. how do we use the new insights and understandings we have to help us begin the process of building bridges towards creating a shared sisterhood? Yes. So Bridge is about creating authentic connections with people who are different than us, where we center the value of equity. And when, when you're bridging, again, it's based on those four components, um, vulnerability, trust, empathy, and risk-taking. And it's, it's really important to know that a bridge is not necessarily the same thing as a friendship. Because in a friendship, especially a cross-racial friendship, you might not ever talk about power. And we see this a lot in friendships where often people from historically marginalized backgrounds may want to talk about race and power, but research shows that white people do not want to do that. And so you sort of want to have maybe a surface level discussion or relationship, but that can often cause there to be um, a lack of real authentic connection between people. So a bridge is where you center the value of equity and where you, you explicitly discuss issues of, of uh, equity. And so 
you can have a professional bridge, you can have a personal bridge. Beth and I happen to have both. And, you know, the way that we started this is professionally, we started doing research together. And inevitably, there were instances where we might be presenting our research and someone might claim credit for one of our ideas. When you're building a bridge, can you trust that the other person will stand up for you? And this is a this is a big part of bridge building or something that I think is important. I Breath and I very much talk about this. If there is a public affront, then there should be a public redress. So when when people, if you're in a meeting and let's say you're from a historically power dominant group and you're trying to bridge with someone from a historically uh, marginalized group, if you're in a meeting and you see someone, especially if a, a, a historically power dominant group takes credit for the idea of someone from a historically marginalized group, one of the best ways you can build a bridge is to publicly in that meeting, hopefully, figure out how you can perhaps subtly check in on that historically marginalized person and see if you can, in an appropriate culture-conforming way, give make sure that the credit is given to the person who it was due. So you might say something like, Oh, that's so interesting. Tanvir, you were just, that was the idea that you shared with me before the meeting. Can you, can you flesh that out a little bit more? Thank you so much, Rob, for, for sharing Tanvir's idea. Something like that, that might not be, but what you're trying to do, and of course, hopefully you have developed a relationship with Tanvir before the meeting, you've gotten Tanvir's buy-in, but you'd be shocked at how many times this is an issue that I've heard lawyers talk about, engineers talk about, doctors, people taking credit for their ideas and they don't know how to stand up for themselves in these meetings. When someone from a historically power dominant group does that for them, it, it is such a wonderful way to build trust and it's a form of risk taking. And what I've heard many people say from historically marginalized groups is a lot of times people who call themselves allies they do it privately. We need more public allyship. And in, in the book, we differentiate between allies, accomplices, and co-conspirators. I don't know if you want me to get into that, but that's another key point. Um, but but this public co-conspiratorship, co-conspiratorial behavior is critical. You know, stop sort of supporting people privately. We need much more public support. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, you've set me up perfectly for us to discuss the final layer towards achieving shares, that of collective action. And I like here how you point out that there are, and as you just mentioned, three different kinds of supporters, including one that we hear a lot about when we talk about DEI initiatives, but that there's really just one that's the most effective in driving collective action to dismantle gender and racial inequality. I know you kind of mentioned them just now, these three kinds of supporters, but could you describe them a bit more and which is the one that we should be aiming to become? Yes. So doctors Ella Bell and Stella Nkomo and Tiffany Jana have worked, uh, they've done some groundbreaking work in terms of helping us distinguish between allies, accomplices, and co-conspirators. And an ally is someone who believes in equity and theory. And those are the people who ran out and bought books, um, made them bestsellers, they might have highlighted those things, wrote no, written notes in the in the margins, but that might be the extent. Um, and, and I know that's painful to hear, but these are people who might not be willing to take a risk. 
they're not going to go to your supervisor and say, I noticed that there is a pay gap between Black women and white women. What's up with that? They're not going to do that. Okay. Accomplices are people who also believe in equity and theory, and they're willing to take a risk. But those risks are often determined by the accomplice. The accomplice thinks that the women should go on strike. That's what they do. They recommend, you know what, women? Go on strike. Now, the women may not be interested in going on strike, but that's what the accomplice thinks needs to happen. That's what the accomplice supports. The co-conspirator is the third grade. And these are people who believe in equity and theory, who are willing to take a risk, and who use, they listen to the voices of the groups of the historically marginalized people that they're ostensibly helping. They say, okay, I think a strike might be good, but the people in the, the historically marginalized groups say, well, actually a strike would be horrible because of X, Y, Z. We will prefer a pay equity audit and we want transparency and communication and a timeline. And the co-conspirator uses their social capital to get into places and spaces where everyone else cannot be and advocates on behalf of the historically marginalized people to push that agenda or, or to get those uh, strategies accomplished. So those are the, the ally, accomplice, co-conspirator distinctions. And when you overlay that with those people processes we talked about from recruiting to onboarding, socialization, promotion, training, pay, succession planning, those systemic processes, you can begin to see how people who have bridged you know, these interpersonal relationships, you start to bridge with more and more people. You form this lattice work of connections. You have a network of sisters. And by the way, anyone can be a sister regardless of gender. And then these folks begin to be co-conspirators and approach these systems together to dismantle inequity. So Tina, we've covered a lot of ground. I hope we've not only given our listeners a lot to think about, but also some concrete steps for what they can do to address gender and racial inequality in the workplace. And let's be honest, we've only really touched the surface on this. And I know, Beth, and you end your book with some additional ideas of what else you can do to address this problem. So could you share some ideas of what our listeners can do at the personal, interpersonal, and collective levels to address gender and racial inequality in the workplace? Yeah, so it's just a couple of things. So at the individual level, I mean, think about, we know from research that most people have very racially homogenous networks. So look at your own, who do you follow on social media? Try to follow people from different backgrounds on social media. I mean, follow Beth and I. We're at Beth A. Livingston and at Dr. Tina Opie across uh, social media, but at an interpersonal level, who are the individuals who you're connecting with? Have you checked in with people to know how they're doing, to see with people from different backgrounds than you? And this is not tokenism. I really want to be clear on that. This is not you walking across to somebody who you have no clue who they are. They have no clue who you are. Um, and, and you say, hey, because you're Black, I want to connect. Please don't do that. that. That's not what I'm recommending. This is, you know, today I just got a call from someone and she noticed that she hadn't seen me at some social events. She's a white woman. And she said, hey, I'm really concerned about you. That's what I'm talking about. 
that at the interpersonal level, she reaches out to me, I reach out to her. She notices when I'm not present. Who are those people that you do that with? At an institutional level, have you checked in with your CEO, with your ERGs? What are the calls to action at your organization? What are they doing? Three years ago, right, when George Floyd was murdered, I mean, that affected the globe. There were so many organizations who made commitments. Where do you all stand? What's your DEI spend? Have you fulfilled the commitments that you made? Those are simple tactics that you all can take uh, right away. At the collective level, I would say connect with your ERGs, look at the systemic sort of solutions that you all have committed to doing and follow up on those. Most of the organizations that I've worked with have planned, they have strategy, strategic plans in place, but they haven't followed up on them. So I'm saying at a collective level, you may not even have to come up with a new plan. Simply dust off the old one and enact it, follow up on that plan and uh, you know, actually hold the administration's feet to the fire and make sure that they deliver and report out on the metrics in terms of collectively, what is the pay equity audit like? How are we going to ensure that we have equitable salary and, and training and evaluations? And if we do not do that, what are the consequences of that? How are we going to improve the situation collectively? Tina, as I'm sure you know, this really is only the beginning of what needs to be an ongoing conversation and I can tell you there's so much more I'd love to talk with you about on this topic. But I want to thank you for creating the space and the opportunity for me to have this conversation and hopefully encourage our listeners to start evaluating and making efforts to do the work themselves so they can foster a shared sisterhood in their organization as well. So thank you so much for coming on my podcast to discuss this topic with me. Thank you so much for having me. It. This was a lot of fun. Um, you have my mind worrying because now I'm thinking about the next time I can get to Montreal because I would love to meet you in person and, and, and talk even more. Oh, I would love that. You, you absolutely have to let me know when you're in Montreal so we can have a cup of coffee in person and continue this important conversation. My thanks again, Tina, for sharing your insights with my listeners and shining a light on what we need to do to address racial and gender inequality at work. Thank you so much. As I said at the start of my conversation with Tina, I know the topic of racial inequality can be a difficult conversation for many to have, but that's why I wanted to have that conversation here to help us address that discomfort and what we need to do to start having conversations where genuine action and change springs forth. And this is an ongoing conversation, which is why I plan on inviting other guests on my podcast to help us learn how can we bridge this divide to ensure the collective success of everyone under our care. So if you'd like to learn more about Tina and Beth's book, check out the show notes for this episode on our podcast page at tavernasir.com slash LBC. Now, if you'd like to learn more about my speaking work, whether that's for a keynote or a workshop, you can do so by going to the speaking page on our website at tavernasir.com, where you can find both a list of some of the topics I cover, as well as some examples of the keynotes and workshops I give. I'm Tavernasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.